Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. I uh, wanted to welcome you to something new. Uh, now, this is a uh, part passion project and uh, part trying to uh, rediscover my passion project. I guess <laughs> it's a. Uh, this is a program where I'm going to uh, try to rediscover my appreciation for Marvel comics. Uh, Marvel, I, I feel like I kind of lost my way with Marvel, or maybe Marvel lost its way with me. I don't know. But uh, over the past several years, I've done very little in the uh, in the way of reading, um, appreciating, enjoying uh, anything from Marvel comics. Uh, don't have much interest in their current output. Um, but then again, if I look over at DC, I still have very little interest in their current output either. So I don't know if... Uh, I don't know what that means. Maybe I'm facing burnout. Maybe it's just a lull period for me. Those things happen, you know? Those things happen sometimes, especially when you're, I guess, when you're, like, tenured in a hobby. You know, you, you can have these little downtimes. And uh, problem is, though, you know, I, I think I might have pigeonholed myself as a DC guy. I do a lot of DC-related content, both uh, at the blog and, uh, you know, even in, in vocal recordings here. A lot of our uh, Cosmic Treadmill offerings have been skewed in the, DC, uh, in the DC camp. And while that wasn't necessarily a concerted effort, it, uh, you know, all the same, it's, it's what's happened to, uh, to the feed. And, uh, I mean, I still blog about DC Comics every single day. So I feel like maybe I've given Marvel the, the short shrift and... Um, I'm a stubborn guy. Um, I don't know if that comes across. I, I kind of hope it doesn't, but at the same time, I'm, I'm telling you. So <laughs> I could be a very stubborn guy. I'm also a very, like, all-in or all-out kind of guy. So if I'm not enjoying current-day Marvel comics, I have very little use for anything that came before it. It's a, it's a defect in me for sure. Um, it's something that I've discussed with friends, and they think I'm insane. And they're right. I mean, this is a... You, I shouldn't, I shouldn't hold today's comics against yesterday's comics, uh, especially when all those comics from yesteryear are the ones that, uh, you know, got me into the uh, into the fandom in in such a passionate and uh, uh, obsessive kind of way. I've told some of these stories before, so if uh, this next little bit is uh, repetitive, I, I do apologize beforehand. I going into re- a recording, I never presume that. Uh, I have repeat listeners, you know, I, I never assume that anybody's, uh, you know, coming in new or even will come back next time. It's, uh, I, ju- I just always try to do things as complete as possible, uh, even at the risk of repeating uh, stories that you've heard before. But, you know, I came into, you know, mainstream superhero comics fandom through the X-Men and it's, uh, it was all Marvel, you know, from... 1990 to you know the late 90s when I started uh, actually making money and uh, had had the opportunity and the ability to explore the other side of the table you know and, and grab the DC stuff but uh, Marvel was my bread and butter for a long long time and uh, I was you know what you would call a Marvel zombie I bought everything with a Marvel logo on it. I didn't care if it was like a reprint. I didn't care if it was a character that was just, you know, not something I was interested in. If it had a Marvel logo on it, I bought it, for better, for worse. Um, and that was just the way I did comics. Uh, and, I mean, the comics weren't, they weren't as, you know, nearly as expensive as they are now, but they also weren't as cheap as, uh, 
as they were like in the 80s, you know. We were still talking, you know, folding money for each issue. You know, it wasn't couch cushion money or anything, you know. It was uh, it was actually, you know, I, I hate the word investment when it comes to comics, but I mean, it was an investment of money. It was spending money to keep up with this. And, uh, and I, I was happy. I was happy doing it. And uh, Marvel just became the world that I, you know, lived around. It was all Marvel all the time. And uh, that would go on until Civil War. Uh, Civil War happened, and, you know, Civil War was a good story, but it didn't really, it it just didn't portray the characters the way I thought that it should. It felt like a lot of uh, square pegs into round holes. Uh, I know that that's a common, um, that's a common critique of Civil War, that it, uh, really made the characters into what they needed to be to tell that specific story. And, you know, to a large extent, that's true. It uh, kind of came out of nowhere, uh, the uh, the behaviors of uh, some of these characters that had been around for the better part of a century at that point. And uh, I, I kind of lost my appreciation for Marvel in a way then. That, that's, that's what ended my streak as a, you know, quote, Marvel zombie. It was... Uh, that was the end for a few reasons, because Civil War had so many tie-ins, so many, you know, expensive tie-ins, and the fact that Civil War didn't portray these characters the way that I had been, you know, brought up to expect them to uh, act and behave. It, it just made me feel like, you know, if the creators and the editors don't care, then, then really, what am I doing? You know, why do I care? Why am I... Why am I getting so upset about this if the people who are making the decisions clearly have no regard for what came before? Why do I worry about it? I'm not getting paid for this. I'm actually paying them for this. So that's kind of what ended my streak as a uh, zombie. But I did keep up with my... Those uh, those can't-quit-you books. I think those cliche can't-quit-yous <laughs> were the ones that I stuck with, which was by no means a short list. I always tried to maintain runs that I'd had. I, I, I try to go back and collect comics to before I was born. That's just one of the things that I do as a collector. I like having my entire life, you know, in a comic book. And uh, for the Marvel side, I had uh, quite a few of those uh, runs. Uh, you know, Amazing Spider-Man, Avengers, Fantastic Four, Uncanny X-Men, Daredevil, Hulk. You know, I had uh, just... A whole lot of uh, these runs from the day I was born till then. So I really just couldn't let those go. You know, those are the ones that I stuck with. I would drop, you know, ancillary t- stories like uh, like the fourth or fifth Avengers title that they put out or the third or fourth relaunch of Runaways or something. I, you know, I'd leave those on the shelf because they would just be, you know, just a little bit too much for, uh, you know, for my budget. And, uh, I remember, like, I think it was, like, 2004, they launched, like, three or four solo X-Men books. And uh, it was, like, Nightcrawler, Rogue, Gambit, and another one. And I was just like, you got to be kidding me. Who's 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 demanding these books? And, uh, you know, sure enough, they barely lasted a year, if they even lasted a year. That's, that's another problem that I had with uh, not necessarily just Marvel, but just uh, corporate comics, I guess. If uh, you've worked in a corporate environment, you know that change is very seldom an evolution, and it's more of a reaction and an event. And rather than actually like setting co- setting a course 
of action and slowly massaging your direct your corporate direction into this new you know new look and new uh, new framework. It's like an immediate change, you know. It's like let's let's make these changes effective yesterday, and I feel like that's what a lot of the corporate comics have done, you know. Uh, Marvel with, you know, people complaining that they only put out Avengers and Spider-Man books, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, here are five solo X-Men books at $4 a piece that nobody's going to buy, but uh, here's the, uh, it's it's an overcorrection, is what I'm trying to say, and uh, the only constant in corporate comics is these overcorrective changes, uh, you know, it's like, well, you don't want new number ones? Well, now we're going back to all legacy numbering. Oh, you don't want legacy numbering? Okay, everything gets a new number one. But that's not, you know, a Marvel-only uh, sort of a situation here. But, uh, you know, going from Civil War, we got those yearly, the annual uh, big crossover events like Secret Invasion and uh, Fear Itself was there. Uh, Siege was in there. There were just so many events and... Uh, you know, it's that cliche event fatigue, you know. We were getting, we were having events that weren't even finished yet where a new event would be announced. And Marvel would go into this sort of lame duck uh, period. We would get our bright and shiny new number one, right, with 7,000 Skate 800 uh, variant covers. We'd get about three or four issues building up to a story, and then the next number one would be solicited or, you know, or put on the, put on our horizon by the fine folks at, uh, whatever, uh, shill comic news, uh, source you, uh, of your choosing. But, uh, then we would enter into this lame duck thing, just getting to the last issue of that volume so we can start the whole process over again. I mean, I, there was a span of time where the Fantastic Four were launched, relaunched, canceled, and it was always like the same story. Like, they'd, you'd have a new number one, the Fantastic Four would split up, and then they'd spend 12 issues rediscovering that they need each other. They'd get back together, the book would get canceled, and then a few months later, a new number one, they'd split up. It, it just, it was over and over and over again. There was just no new stories, and the, the number one fatigue was just painful. Especially if you're someone as obsessive and as wonky as I am, where you need to know where everything goes. Uh, you know, Marvel did their little, uh, their voodoo math not too long ago when they did the legacy numbering, and it's like, okay, well, you want to have every Avengers? Well, here's three issues from this run, here's 15 issues from this run. I mean, looking at those charts, it was, uh, I mean, you needed, you'd need a compass, <laughs> and, uh, you'd need a compass and to check what side the moss on the tree was growing on to know where to, where to read. It was, you'd go from Avengers to New Avengers to Mighty Avengers back to Avengers, it was just way too much for me, and uh, it just really turned me off as a reader. I would also turn me off, and this is something that I've discussed a time or two before, was uh, back in around uh, 2009, 2010 or so, uh, over at the Comic Book Resources Forums, somebody, somebody uh, took notice that Marvel was cutting pages while raising prices, and there was such a horrible spin done uh, on that entire scene. Uh, where Marvel editors were coming in, and instead of just you know letting letting folks know that you know this is the cost of doing business, you know, like which it's not an answer we would have liked, but it was an answer we could have accepted because it's the truth. Uh, they actually just came in and started mocking this poor dude for wasting his time counting pages instead of enjoying a story. Which, I mean, if he enjoyed the story, he probably wouldn't have counted the pages. So what are you gonna do? 
But the whole thing of it was uh, these editors came in so full of piss and vinegar and uh, were, like, almost hateful towards this guy who was, you know, a paying customer. And then CBR swooped in and kind of controlled the narrative by removing all posts that made cogent points and leaving all the posts that were just dudes swearing and cursing in, in caps at the Marvel editors to make it look like this was a... You know, one-sided, you know, lunatic side of people who are counting pages And these calm, steady, but sort of snarky Marvel editors who were super cool And uh, that was just another nail in Marvel's coffin for me I didn't want to support these people They just came across like jerks who didn't appreciate the people who were putting food on their plate And uh, it was just yet another nail It's like, well, they don't care about the characters They don't care about the continuity They don't care about the linear nature of storytelling And now they don't care about their customers And of course, these are all anecdotal So, I mean, I'm not I I hate painting with a broad brush And I try not to do that whenever I speak or whenever I write Uh, So we'll we'll put in, like, the potentials and the generally speakings here Because I don't want to I don't want to paint everyone with the same brush But uh, we jump ahead to... uh, more of the same, more crossovers. Avengers vs. X Men. Uh, uh, what was that other one where they all, where the bad guys became good guys and the good guy, was it Axis or something? I don't know. But uh, but one that really got stuck in my craw was Secret Wars, the uh, 2015 one, because uh, because of the last page of the first issue, actually, because it said you know Marvel Universe, like an it was like an epitaph here. It was a uh, or an. an it was Marvel Universe 1961 to 2015 And I'm thinking They're letting people actually see, sign the death certificate for the Marvel Universe People who have not given one original concept or character to this company Are being allowed to, you know, throw dirt on the grave I, I just didn't understand that Especially when, you know, the whole thing was just a It was just a thing to to, to spur discussion and to... uh and to make people like me angry, and to make people who don't like people like me very giddy, it just seemed like a very uh, a very divisive thing to do and a very pointless thing to do. And that's when I stopped uh, really uh, supporting a lot of uh, of Marvel's output. From that point on, I uh, hate to admit it, but I started to I think what the kids call hate read Marvel comics. I was reading them just to look for stuff to complain about, which is an incredibly stupid and irresponsible thing for a Person in his mid-thirties who has bills to pay to do uh, You figure, you know, you vote with your wallet You know, you, you stop reading what you don't like And things that, you know, life's way too short And there's way too many things in real life to get you down That you you shouldn't let your hobbies do it And unfortunately, I kind of fell down that trap uh, Because, you know, I've just been reading these things for decades at this point And it was easier for me to hate what I was reading Than to actually just stop reading And, uh Eventually, I did stop reading, but I kept buying. Uh, it's another one of my major defects that I'm still dealing with to this day on the on the DC side. I uh, buy things because I I think that I will eventually want to read them. You know, I'll eventually need this in my collection, and I'll eventually come back around to being a rabid fan of Amazing Spider-Man or Uncanny X-Men, and I'm going to need these. So I might as well just get them now while they're available, affordable. You know, they're getting delivered to my house by DCBS, whatever, you know. So I kept buying them. And I they just started stacking up. And I would uh, occasionally pop in and see what's going on. And, 
it got to the point where I wasn't even able to recognize some of these characters. Uh, and I'm not talking about the, you know, the substitute heroes that came in or the, you know, the replacement heroes. I'm talking about just looking at, uh, you know, Kitty Pride on a page. It's like, who is that? I don't know who that is. <laughs> That's a character I followed for 30 years. It's uh, just very, very weird, uh, all the changes that were going down. And uh, it just became clear to me that these weren't being written for me anymore. And that's okay. That's okay. Uh, I think it's uh, it's healthy to understand that, and it's hard, it's healthy to recognize that, and to uh, and to come to pe- come to terms, you know, come to peace with it. And my problem was that, you know, the the sins of the son were getting blamed on the father. For me, it was I was unable to actually enjoy or appreciate anything that came before it because I knew what was coming. You know, and, and this is very very inside my own head sort of stuff here and it's very silly and it's very short-sighted and it's very unfair but like i i have my you know comfort food reading projects that i would do you know before i started writing and talking about comics and i had time to actually read comics for fun i would always try to fit in you know the entire peter david hulk run every year i would try to work through the from claremont to claremont x-men run uh, occasionally, you know, just trying to get these things in and read and because they were a, a source of comfort for me. They brought me back to a time in my life where, uh, you know, things were very different <laughs> and, uh, things were, uh, fun and, uh, different. It was just a different part of my life and I just can't, couldn't do it anymore. I tried reading the Peter David Hulk probably a year or two ago and I couldn't get past the first issue because I knew what Hulk was going to become. You know, he's going to get shot in the head during Civil War Two, and now that he's this whatever immortal Hulk stuff is, it's not for me. You know, it's just not my not my cup of tea, and I, I, I find it, or I found it to be like an affront on the character that came before it. And I took that out on the old comics, which is very short-sighted, very silly. And as a lot of my friends have pointed out, it's crazy. <laughs> and it's true. It's very true. That uh, I'm I'm you know disregarding half of my collection or over half of my collection, uh, even though I've been only buying DC for the most part over the past several years. My Marvel collection still outweighs my DC collection. I've got tens of thousands of Marvel comics in the next room, but I've I haven't revisited them because I'm just so I have this weird passive aggressive anger. You know, I'm not doing anything about it, but at the same time, I'm also not. Not taking advantage of what I have, and uh, and that that kind of bleeds over into uh, the you know the writing and the cr- content creation pursuits because over at the treadmill uh, we I, we want to talk more Marvel I want to talk more Marvel but there's like this weird mental block where it turns into nitpicking and snark and I I don't want to be that guy you know I don't want us to be that show. There's enough there. There's enough content out there that's snarky and dismissive, and uh, really just nitpicking for the for the you know for the joy of picking nits. And I don't want us to be that show. I don't want us to be that channel. I don't want to be that guy. So this here little project <laughs> that I've been building up for the past twenty minutes is kind of a means to an end for me. I want to I want to rediscover. The love that I had for Marvel Comics uh, I want to Be able to appreciate Everything that came before I, And I'm not saying that I, I want to necessarily Start reading, you know, current Marvel output I, I mean 
I've already kind of broken that, and uh, and it was painful. It was a painful split when I stopped collecting uh, certain books. Amazing Spider-Man, I had to drop. Um, Fantastic Four, I dropped. Uh, the last one that I dropped was uh, was Uncanny X-Men, which was at one point uh, the book that I wanted to have a complete run of. I wanted to have every single issue of Uncanny X-Men, and I'm, and I'm I came pretty damn close. And uh, with the I don't even know if it was the latest reboot. It might be two reboots ago at this point, but uh, they announced that Uncanny X-Men was going like weekly for a little while, and like every issue was going to have like six or seven writers, and they were gonna they were gonna be like between anywhere between five and ten dollars an issue, and it was just like, wow, Marvel, you made this one a little easier on me than I <laughs> had assumed you would, because at that point it was just like I'm gonna be spending you know over twenty bucks on a single comic every month. That's being written by a whole bunch of different people uh, Some I haven't even heard of Some that I have heard of I didn't like And uh, I I did wind up with the first issue It got sent to me by mistake And I opened it up And I didn't recognize a soul It was just like, okay Maybe my time has come as a Marvel fan And uh, and I was I was okay with that At that point It was just like, okay, now this is done you know. And it's it's sad and I, I did lose sleep over it. Um, and there are still times when I'm in a when I'm in a shop and they're having like a big dollar sale or something. There are still times I will be like magnetically drawn over to the X section on the wall and uh, just see if it's if it's something I want to dip my toe back into again. And uh, thus far, it hasn't been. But you never know. It's a it's it's a hard habit to break. It's especially strange uh, every month when I'm filling out my DCBS order and. I don't even click on the Marvel page anymore. It's it's weird because uh, uh, it, got, it got to when I started with a DCBS. It was right around the time of the New Fifty Two, and it, it would slowly tick down that I would go to the DC page less and less because I, I wasn't really enjoying what was going on there. And now it's the the complete opposite. It just uh, when one is up, the other's down for me. It's it's weird. Uh, I, I kind of blame it on you know lack of time. Uh, to invest in such a thing I, I always say that I've only got enough Space in my brain for one universe <laughs> And uh, That's you know That's more short-sighted Chris stuff To uh, to kind of digest But you know, I, I, I want to I want to I want to stem the burnout Because I'm not liking what DC is doing And uh, I have no problem reading old DC stuff I still do that every day at the blog But uh I want to be I want to be a happy comic book fan again, and I want to get past anger, and I don't want to take things personally because I mean they don't know who Chris is, they don't care who Chris is. Do they get Chris's three or four dollars a week? You know that's that's all they care about. And there's a lot of Chris's out there, you know. <laughs> so it's uh, whether or not this one does is no big deal. But uh, that's what we're doing here. I'm trying to rediscover my passion, my love, and. Uh, and in reading the book that we're going to be discussing today, uh, I think we might be well on our way. It's a weird book. We're going to get to it in just a little bit. Uh, the project, though, I'm going to call it... Uh, I, I kept trying to figure out, like, a clever name. Uh, I'm not good at clever names, despite, you know, people really digging Chris's on Infinite Earths. Uh, that, you know, I, I kind of got lucky, I, I guess. But the only thing that I can think of to call this is Re-Marvel. Uh, because, you know, the, the preface Re... Just uh, it's 
it gives you a lot of it, it just makes your your brain kind of think about return you know re relive reunion um just a a revisit and that's kind of what this is going to be for me i'm kind of dipping my toe back in here to the uh you know the red brand <laughs> as it were just trying to rediscover what made me a comic book fan in the first place and uh, I hope you guys dig it, and I hope you guys can help me out. Um, you know, if there are, cause there are so many Marvel books that I wanted to cover on the treadmill, but it's that mental block. Uh, right now, I'm writing a, uh, I'm in the middle of writing one talking about the X Trader from uh, Uncanny X Men 287, uh, where you know Bishop and his buddies from the future, you know, find this weird video of Jean Grey being attacked by someone uh, from within. And just all the theories and all the fun and all the conspiracy and all the discussion that that spurred in, in Wizard Magazine and in the comic shops and among friends. Uh, it was a magical time in uh, in my life and in my comic fandom. And, and I'm trying to write this script and it's just not coming. There's this weird mental block because it's a Marvel book and I, I'm just not wanting to be in that space. But I do want to be in the space at the same time. So... We're, uh, we're, we're working in process here. It's our progress, or whatever the word. I'm, we're, we're working through a process. That's what I'm trying to say. But there are just so many, so many great things about Marvel that I love and uh, that I would love to talk about. I want to do Daredevil Born Again. I want to do The Death of Gene DeWolf. I mean, I'm doing Strikeforce Moritori right now uh, over on Moritori Mondays. Just really trying to make myself a better rounded <laughs> sort of a... A content creator and just a comic fan I want to be happy again And uh, this is a step one Or step whatever, I don't know And we talked not too long ago uh, On Chris's On Infinite Earths About uh, being able to Distinguish between Ordinary and profound moments And uh, sometimes the profound are <laughs> Kind of Disguised as the most ordinary um, This past weekend I took a drive out to a fifty cent bin that I that I frequent, or not not so much frequent. I do I let them build up for a few months, and then I I head out there because it's a it's a long drive. It's a about a forty five minute drive across town, but I know that they always have just a wonderful selection. And usually I go there with only DC on the mind, you know, DC on the brain. And uh, in the first box I started, you know, sifting through, I started finding these Marvel Age magazines. Um, which I, I have a bunch of, I don't have, I don't have a list with, like, handy when I'm shopping, so I, I might have grabbed doubles, I might have grabbed triples for all I know, but, uh, my, my go-to list is basically all the DC books that I need, and, uh, my Marvel list is, isn't as flushed out as it should be, uh, for, like, an on-the-go sort of a situation, but I found these Marvel Age books, and on the cover of one of them was, a uh, Void Indigo. It was a Steve Gerber uh, project. It was originally intended or originally pitched as a, a a revision on Hawkman that DC passed on. And so Steve, you know, refigured it to a creator-owned sort of a situation and uh, put it out through the Epic Marvel's Epic imprint, uh, at least for two issues. It got canned very, very quickly. It was very controversial. I think uh, someone in like Comic Buyer's Guide or the Comics Journal like called it like literal garbage and, and it's not it's pretty good it's interesting uh it's might be more interesting for everything that goes on that went on behind the scenes but uh 
it's still interesting. And it, and I saw that Void Indigo cover, and I was like, you know, that's another one I wanted to talk about on the treadmill. You know, that's because I, I I definitely want to do a uh, an in depth Steve Gerber uh, discussion. I, I think his career is fascinating, and uh, there's just a lot of moving parts in it. And uh, you know, got his animation side. The well, you know has a consultant on the animation. Uh, the Howard the Duck deal, the the Destroyer Duck thing, the working with Kirby. I think he's just got a, a very interesting story. And and I'm seeing Void Indigo, and it's like that's that's one I want to talk about, you know. And I don't want to talk about that one today because that one I definitely want to make sure gets a uh, gets a full treadmill episode. Uh, but the book we're going to discuss today is also a Steve Gerber book. It's uh, Omega the Unknown, uh, number one from uh, 1975, I believe. And uh, this is another one that I kind of... Actually, it was 1976. But this is another one that I kind of want to do on the treadmill as well. Uh, this is an, a very interesting story. It's a, it's a weird comic, but it also has some weird behind-the-scenes stuff. And I discovered Omega the Unknown not from the original run. I, I discovered it when uh, Jonathan Lethem, uh, the novelist, uh, and Farrell, Dal- Farrell Dalrymple, <laughs> they put out a, uh, a new take on Omega the Unknown in around 2007 or so. And it, w- it looked like nothing else that came out from Marvel at the time. As a matter of fact, I didn't even realize it was a Marvel property. Because uh, you, you look at the cover and it doesn't look anything Like anything coming out of Marvel It looked... I was drawn to it because I thought it was an Oni Press book And back then, I was kind of all in on Oni Press uh, Whatever they put out, I would give it a try And uh, I had like this weird... It, it, I, I would, I'll, po- I'll post pictures of it on, uh, on the website It's just very strange Or you can Google it <laughs> It's Omega the Unknown Volume 2. It's easy to find. But uh, I was immediately drawn over to this thinking it was like a new image character or, like I said, an Oni book. And then I see the Marvel banner on it. It's like, what the hell is this? And I picked it up and uh, I read it and it it creeped me out, which comics don't usually do. Uh, I've actually posed this question on social media several times, like... There's a lot of horror books out there, but, you know, send me one that scares you. I want to be scared by a comic book. I want a horror book to do what it's supposed to do, because I've never been creeped out by a comic book before. And usually I'll get, like, replies like, well, you should check out Youngblood number one. That's the scariest thing I ever read. But but seriously, you know, I I, I wanted to be creeped out by a comic, and uh, then I bought this one not expecting anything, and it, and it kind of it makes you uneasy. It's very, very strange, and... Uh, you know, getting this book home, realizing it's a Marvel book, and uh, I, I googled it, and uh, you know, I used the greatest research tool of the 21st century, and uh, and then I found out that this was a, a a revisioning of an old property from the 70s, and the weird story that was surrounding him, uh, the character. And the way that they closed out his story, the weird way that they closed out his story, that I won't go into now because this, you know. I might want to save that for a treadmill because it's a it's a very interesting discussion, and it also kind of taps into the power of the letters pages uh, because a lot of these uh, a lot of the questions about the fallout kind of brood in uh, in letters pages for different books entirely. So it's it's an interesting story that I'm looking forward to getting to eventually. But uh, I, I I was all in on this new take, 
And uh, I, I, I've since gone and, uh, and picked up the entire original run, uh, including the trade paperback, which is a story in and of itself. I, uh, this is back when I was still working in South Phoenix. This is before the big layoff. And I, I lived probably about 45 minutes um, northwest of where I worked. So I had two ways I could take home. I could either go north then west or west then north. And I, I usually went north then west. It just seemed to be easier traffic-wise and uh, less construction, uh, marginally less construction. Uh, one day I was driving home west then north and got got stuck in construction and wound up driving you know, way off the beaten path just to get around it. And I happened across a comic book store that I had never heard of before. And uh, it was kind of like around nothing. You know, there were no... I think it was next door to like a closed-down bowling alley. So there was nothing... No destination there besides the comic store. It wasn't like there was like a Walmart in the neighborhood or anything like that. It was just a random comic store. And uh, and if you're anything like me, and I, I, I kind of hope you're not, but... Uh, if you see a comic store, if you see anything that looks like it could be a comic store, you pull over. Day or night, <laughs> weekday, weekend, opened or closed, you pull over just to make a note of it. And uh, that's what I did. I pulled in, place was open, I walked in, and uh, and it was a very strange shop because it it purported itself to be a uh, an all-ages comic store. So it didn't really... It didn't really stock anything that could be considered mature readers, you know. And at this point, I was uh, I was trying to collect the Grant Morrison Doom Patrol trades because they had finally started releasing things that weren't, you know, the first one. So they finally started releasing um, subsequent volumes. So I went in there just looking for it, and uh, and when I asked him, I'm like, "Hey, do you have this Doom Patrol book?" He's like, he looked at me. He's like, "No." I'm like, "Oh, okay. Uh, can you order it?" No, I won't do that. I'm like, well, why not? And he's like, this is a this is an all ages bookstore. I, I'm not. I, I don't bring Vertigo stuff in here. It's like, wow. Okay. Well, I, I guess I'll have to go somewhere else for it. But I, I at the same time, I, I had way too much money, and I felt bad for the guy, so I decided to do a little bit of shopping, and I bought a uh, I bought a Savage Dragon archive, those black and white kind of phone book ones, and I'm sure that it had full frontal nudity in it, which kind of makes me laugh that this was there but doom patrol you know heaven forbid we're not keeping doom patrol on the shelves and we're not even gonna let you order doom patrol but here's some you know savage dragon where uh you know where boobs are in your face for a quarter of a quarter of an issue but as i'm checking out uh, he does bring out the you know the order form for stuff and i'm like oh maybe he'll let me order this doom patrol book after all but no it was a. Uh, it was all uh, it was all Marvel stuff. He he was uh, trying to he's like, hey, if there's anything here you want me to order, I can do it. And I found the Omega the Unknown classic. It's a trade paperback. I think it was like, I I I have it just outside of reach right now. I think it was like thirty dollars. But I'm like, how else am I going to get this book? You know, I, I I didn't know that it would be easy to get as single issues, which it was. But uh, that was years later though. So I'm like, okay, let me check this out. You know, and it wasn't easy to find or as easy to find scans online. And I, you know, I, I don't do the, you know, I, I can't read things digitally, you know that. But uh, so I'm like, okay, let's order this book. Bada bing, bada boom. I pay, I prepay. Omega the Unknown is uh, going to be shipped to the store. He'll let me know when it shows up. Uh, you know, fast forward a couple weeks and I get laid off from work. This is a, 
you know, leap day, 20, uh, 2008, where I got laid off from my job, and I never heard back from the shop. It's like, okay, well, I'll give him another week. I give him another week, and uh, still nothing. But uh, that day, I had to go into my old office to get my final paycheck, which, you know, uh, that it came with a severance package. You know, there's severance and my final paycheck. And, and what they don't tell you, you know, uh, the day that they closed my branch down, the uh, CFO of the company, uh, uh, he called me into an office, closed the door, and he said, I think we'll be back soon. And uh, he said that... Uh, this was a situation where our contract as service providers for a major a retail establishment uh, was cut, uh, was bought out, and they decided to provide their own services in-house, uh, which is very, very smart and shrewd business move. I can't hold it against them. But my manager, or the, the CFO of the company, he didn't think that they'd be able to keep it up, and he figured that before long, We'd all be called back in, and everything would be back to normal. And he told me, he's like, he's like, hey, just relax for a little bit. You have plenty of money because of the severance package. You've got plenty of money. Just relax for a little bit, and uh, we'll see about revisiting this. I'm like, oh, wow, okay, so he's taking care of me. Well, I go and get my paycheck, my final paycheck with the severance, and nobody told me that they tax severance differently than they do regular income. And so... The several thousand dollars I was supposed to get were only a couple thousand dollars I was going to get, and uh, I was I was pretty hot. I was pretty hot uh, because I was expecting to have a little bit more breathing room, uh, but with the severance I got, I was barely able to afford one month's mortgage, and it was just not a good time. Well, that day I figure, okay, I'm going to treat myself because I was just so angry. I might as well go to that comic shop and see if they have that comic that I already paid for. You know, this uh, this Omega the Unknown trade paperback that I already paid for. So I go driving down there. I walk in. Dude acts like I, he's never even met me before, which, I mean, well, I, with where he was, I probably was the last person to go into that store all those weeks before anyway. But uh, he acted like he didn't know who I was. I asked him if the book came in, and he, he didn't know what I was talking about. He acted like he didn't have a single clue what I was talking about. It's like, okay. So then I, I walk, I turn around, and I look on the trade uh, his trade shelves, and what do you know? Omega the Unknown Classic is on the shelf. And I said, hey, that, that's the book I ordered. And he's like, I, I don't think so. I'm like, yeah, it is. He's like, no, no, I'd remember something like that. And after having been slapped in the face with this... Uh, this uh, you know unexpected taxing on my uh, on my severance package. I'm I'm like ruffling through my pocket like you son of a bitch. I'm gonna yeah. I'm just going. I'm really really ticked off. He met a totally different guy this second visit, and I I, I had luckily kept the receipt and I gave it to him. And he looked at me like I had three heads. He's like, oh well, I, we don't usually do stuff like that. I'm like, dude, it was you. And and I'm I'm cursing this guy out at this point because I'm. You know, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to eat anytime soon. And I know I'm not going to be able to pay my car payment. I'm not going to be able to keep the lights on. And this idiot is just, uh, he's withholding something that I paid for. And uh, and he finally relented. And I, I cursed him out. And I, I told him uh, I told him I'd never be back in there. And, I, and that was all the moot point anyway, because he was out of business in a couple months. Uh, anyway, so, you know, no, no harm, no foul, I guess. He was uh, trying to... <laughs> I don't know, maybe keep his lights on an extra little while with my $30 that he 
didn't provide the service for. But uh, that's how I first came into owning the first run of Omega the Unknown, and uh, it's actually the trade that I used to uh, put together this little script that we're going to go through as we uh, as we explore Omega the Unknown number one right now. Omega the Unknown number one, March 1976 cover date. Title is Omega the Unknown. This was written and conceived of by Steve Gerber and Mary Screens, or Screens, I don't know how you pronounce that. Illustrated by Jim Mooney, colors by Petra Goldberg, who I wonder if uh, is Petra Scotese as well, I don't know. Letters, John Costanza, edited by Marv Wolfman, edited in chief by Jerry Conway. And uh, we open this one up with a man clad in dark blue with red trim and a cape. He's engaged in a battle with a small army of robots. There's like this weird, uh, odd, uncertain narration accompanying the scene, so it's, it's not really clear whose voice this is, but it's, uh, it's very well written regardless. Uh, this man wrecks havoc on these robots, or people who look like robots, I don't know, before ultimately destroying them with a blast from his hands. Before this blast erupts from his hands, however, we can see that they sort of form the Omega symbol on his palms. After blasting, he drops to his knees, completely exhausted. A previously unseen robot approaches to take advantage of the situation and winds up shooting our man in the back with a ray gun of sorts, and he screams in agony. This segues very, very neatly into our next scene where a young boy sits up in bed also crying out as though he's in pain. His parents enter the room to check on him and they address him as James Michael. When asked if he can remember what what his dream was about, the boy says, eh, I don't know. All he can remember is that there was a feeling, a cold feeling, a desolate feeling. We learn that this family, the Starlings, live up in the mountains, and to this point, James Michael has never really interacted with other children. He's met a few, but he wasn't really all that impressed with them. That situation is all about to change, however, because the kid's being shipped off into the city to attend school there. In fact, this very scene is occurring at a motel just outside New York City, and, uh, James Michael is not taking this change in life all that well. The following morning, the Starlings pack up at the motel and head toward their destination. James Michael still ain't digging this, but his parents try to psych him up all the same. As they're driving around a a mountain, they come to a bend in the road. James Michael calmly suggests that his mother brace herself because there's about to be a collision. And just then, a truck heads right for them and it nails them head-on, pushing the car off the road and off the side of a nearby cliff. A little bit later, hearing his mother's voice, James Michael comes too. He follows the sound of her voice to discover her severed robotic head. She warns him not to listen to the voices, as they are the only thing that can harm him, and then she melts into slag. (laughs) So, I don't know if that'll uh, leave an impression, but it was a pretty gruesome scene, very, very well, well rendered. As James Michael attempts to make sense out of the situation, whispers begin to arise in the back of his head. Those whispers soon become roars, and he's suddenly seeing some really psychedelic stuff. This whole event is interrupted by the arrival of onlookers and passers-by to check on the wreck, and James Michael begins to panic. We shift back to the big guy, our hero of sorts, and he is shackled to a wall via energy beam restraints. He watches on as a battle rages between those robot-looking people and uh, humans, or at least they look like humans. He's able to break break free of his bindings and launches into action, just wrecking the bots. He steals a rocket and shoots off into orbit, 
and as he draws further and further away from the planet, he is enveloped in darkness, which segues beautifully into our next scene that takes place in a darkened hospital room of James Michael Starling. He wakes up, and he calmly asks the nurse if he was in a coma, and she confirms that, yes, you were in a coma. Turns out he's at the Barrow Clinic in New York, so it looks like he, he made it to the city after all. He asks why, she's, why he's been restrained. He's being held to the bed, you know, and she tells him it's to keep him safe just in case he started thrashing while in a, his comatose state. He reminds her, calmly, that he's not currently thrashing, and he asks that the restraints be removed. He also, calmly, informs her that if he can't untense his muscles pretty soon, he might just begin to panic. And so the nurse calls in Dr. Thomas Barrow to evaluate this creepily calm boy. After a brief introduction, the doc is impressed with J.M.'s vocabulary, to which James Michael tells him that he's been homeschooled. He's never been to a, you know, actual school. He's always been tutored at home by his parents. The doc asks where home is for the boy, and he calmly replies that he doesn't have one anymore because, you know, mom and dad are dead. When asked when they died... James Michael responds with, this morning. And at this point, we learn that he was actually, he's actually been in a coma for a month, so not exactly this morning, just a morning. The doc asks how he feels about losing his parents and uh, get another calm reply. He says, they were good to me. Uh, and then he lets it slip that uh, the only thing he has to fear are the voices, which really makes the doc's ears perk up quite a bit. Uh, this reaction kind of freaks James out, but the doctor apologizes for his overreaction, and everything gets more or less smoothed over. James Michael asks if he still has to go to school, to which the nurse laughs, because this is the first normal boy reaction she's seen out of him yet. The nurse gives him a sedative, and he asks her to explain the chemical composition of the pills. He's a very strange boy. Outside the, uh, outside the examination room, or his hospital room, the doc lights up a pipe, which I don't think he could do now, and he tries wrapping his head around everything concerning this boy and his event. So fascinated is he that he wants to keep him at the clinic to learn more about the situation. Because, you know, there were no flesh, no blood at the scene of the, cr- of the crash here. Uh, this boy has a scarily analytical mind. It's, uh, it's a very interesting uh, case study, I suppose. But unfortunately, our boy doesn't have any money. And the clinic's board of directors isn't all that keen on going charity, so the kid's either going to be on the street or shipped off to, you know, some sort of a unit uh, before long. In the meantime, however, he instructs the nurse, this is uh, Ruth Hart, to pump the kid for information. And so over the next few weeks, she tries to do just that. Uh, it doesn't really work, though. The kid still ain't making a peep about anything that uh, the doc's interested in hearing about. We jump to the next board of directors meeting for the clinic, and Dr. Barrows makes his pitch to keep the boy there. The board's like, sure, yeah, keep him there, but you have to come up with the $500 a week to, uh, to keep him. And the doc is not willing to do so. He's not willing to part with $500 a week. And so he and Nurse Hart move on to plan B. And this is weird. Ruth, our nurse, and her roommate, Amber, well, they're going to take the boy home with them. Which, I mean, that's weird. Uh, While still at the clinic, Amber, the roommate, discovers James Michael playing chess by himself. And uh, they briefly talk about playing games against yourself. Uh, You get some kind of weird dual personality chatter here. And uh, Amber reveals that sometimes the voices get into her head, uh, to which the boy perks up because I think he thinks she's speaking literally. 
Ruth enters the scene and informs the punk that he's coming home with them. Uh, Amber calls uh, James Michael punk uh, as a uh, as a uh, lovingly, I suppose. He's surprised, but he's cool to go along for the ride because it beats being shipped off, shipped off to the funny farm. Later, James Michael gets settled into his hospital bed. However, before he can fall asleep, one of those robot-looking things from the other world busts in through his window. This critter scans JM with a sort of eye beam in order to confirm that he's their right, their, their proper target. And although he's not the right size or shape or composition, the bot is just fine killing him all the same. Just then, the hero arrives and engages in battle with the bot. After a lengthy and room-destroying tussle, the hero lets off an Omega Blast to destroy the baddie. He smiles at the boy, grabs the bot body, and then leaves, just as Dr. Barrow bursts into the room to find out what all the hubbub's about. He checks on the boy, who now has smoke rising from his hands, and upon further investigation, it looks like the boy has the Greek letter Omega imprinted on his palms. And that is Omega the Unknown, number one, from March 1976 cover. Weird issue. Very, very weird issue. Uh, very heady uh, compared to what, you know, I, I would usually think of as a Bronze Age comic. But, uh, I mean, it totally fits with uh, stories that Steve Gerber would tell. <laughs> and it's uh, it's really a lot of fun. Um, the Lethem uh, re- re- reimagining or the new take on the character is similar in a way, uh, tonally, uh, but uh, definitely not exactly the same. I, I couldn't say uh, with any kind of uh, certainty which one I like better, which one I prefer, because they're both really good. I, I enjoy them both if for just how weird they are and how uh, how uneasy they make me feel. Because this is just one of those books that, I don't know, there's just, there's a lot of discomfort. And uh, you don't get all the explanations you want. It's it's one of those that, uh, that you know, you, maybe leaves you a little bit itchy. <laughs> and, but in such a good way. Because it really, uh, it makes you want to continue. It makes you want to keep uh, pulling back layers to learn what this is all about. And the story is just so well told in that... Uh, I mean, these segues are, are perfect. I mean, they're, they're almost cinematic in a way, where you do fade out of one scene and just pop right into another seamlessly. It's uh, quite well done. Uh, and, and the art overall is just really, really strong. Um, really evokes that, that Bronze Age Marvel uh, feel. But I had a lot of fun looking at this. I had a lot of fun revisiting this. It's been probably, you know, oh boy, over a decade since I've read this. And uh, still enjoy it I, I don't know if we'll continue with Omega the Unknown Maybe we will as we uh, continue this little uh, Sort of kind of passion project We'll, uh, we'll see how it goes if, uh, if anyone out there is listening And uh, <laughs> has a Marvel book they'd like me to take a look at Let me know And uh, we'll see what we can, uh, we can work out uh, I, I just want to use this sort of a you know, Tiny platform as a way to facilitate uh, Finding what brought me into this Finding what uh, made a fan out of Chris And I, you know, because the thing of it is Is when you're, when you do create content You almost have to, you have to turn everything into a multitasker You know, you, you can't just read things for fun Or at least I can't I just don't have the, I don't have the time, the attention span <laughs> Whatever it is But uh, having a a program here to discuss things as sort of a means to an end uh, makes it a lot easier for me to 
actually, you know, sink my heels in and get some get some reading done. I hope you all enjoyed, and uh, I hope you check out Omega the Unknown. It is, uh, as far as I know, it is available on Marvel Unlimited, so if you do have a subscription to that, you do have access to Omega the Unknown. If you're like me and you need the physical versions, um, I don't think it's too hard to come by. Uh, it's usually something I find in dollar bins. It's... I don't think I've ever paid more than a dollar for an issue of Omega the Unknown. Uh, the most expensive thing was that trade paperback that I prepaid for. but uh, And I'm sure I've seen that on the secondhand uh, market as well. So it, it's not a hard one to come by. Um, the trade collection actually does include the, you know, the secret ending of the story. Because the, the series itself ends uh, kind of on a cliffhanger. Uh, or just without, without proper explanation or, or you know, closure. It uh, will ultimately get wrapped up in a couple of issues of Defenders, of all things. So uh, the trade paperback does include the uh, Defenders bits, so you can actually get the full story as as unsatisfying as it actually winds up being. It's there for you, so you can have the whole thing in one gulp. And I'd say it's worth checking out, Uh, just as an an oddity, a Marvel oddity, um, and something that doesn't get nearly as much play as I think it should uh, Omega the Unknown, you could do far worse than checking this one out. Uh, so I think that'll do it for uh, this pilot outing for Remarvel. Uh, hope you dug what you heard. Um, if you want to get a hold of us, you could do so at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Check out the show site at chrisandreggie.com. You can check out my site at Chris and, uh, chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. And uh, I think that'll do it. Had a great time dipping my toe back into something that starts with Stan Lee Presents. <laughs> and uh, look forward to doing this uh, somewhat regularly just to uh, kind of get my Marvel mojo back. But that's it for today. So, so long for now. See ya. See ya.